Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 323 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new movie Sorry to Bother You, directed by Boots Riley. And this won't involve spoilers for everything in the movie, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So, first up, we've got Evan Narciss, who you may remember from our panel on Black Panther back in episode 302. He's written about video games, comic books, and pop culture for io9, Kotaku, Time, and Techland. And he also wrote the Rise of the Black Panther comic for Marvel. So, Evan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, David. Then next up, we've got Tanana Reeve Du, who you also may remember from our panel on Black Panther. Her novels include The Living Blood, Joplin's Ghost, and My Soul to Keep. And her short story collection, Ghost Summer, won the 2016 British Fantasy Award. She teaches classes on Afrofuturism and Black Horror at UCLA. And you should also check out her online Afrofuturism class over at afrofuturismwebinar.com. So, Tanana Reeve, welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be here. And also joining us today is Craig Lawrence Gidney, who you may remember from our panel on Queers Destroy Horror back in episode 173. He's the author of the young adult novel Bereft, and his collections Skins Eat Magic and See Swallow Me and Other Stories were both finalists for the Lambda Literary Award. So, Craig, welcome to the show. Welcome, and hello to everyone. Okay, so let's start off with Evan and have you just tell us what it was like watching Sorry to Bother You for the first time. Uh, Sorry to Bother You, I saw for the first time at South by Southwest um, in March. Um, I had had a few uh, film critic friends um, see it uh, at Sundance um, this January, um, but there wasn't that much chatter about it. Um, I knew it was something I wanted to see, uh, mostly because I'm a Lakeith Stanfield fan, um, but nothing really prepared me for what I wound up seeing. Um, it was amazing. I, I thought it was like, you know, uh, mindfuckery of the, of the highest order. Um, but also, uh, amazingly clear and assured in its handling of its like thematic and political subjects. Um, and also a great piece of character work too. Um, the, the, the characters move through arcs that are compelling and, um, familiar, uh, and riveting. Um, I, I think it's one of the best debut movies, um, from a first time filmmaker I've ever seen. Well, you said that you were a Lakeith Stanfield fan already. What, what, and he's the star. He plays the main character in the movie. What were you familiar with him from before? Yeah, Lakeith plays, um, he plays Cassius Green, the main character. Sorry to bother you. Um, I mostly knew him from his work on, um, Atlanta, uh, the Donald Glover series that, uh, that's, um, on FX. Um, he's also in Get Out in a small but important role. Um, but it was mostly Atlanta I knew him from, and he plays Darius, the kind of stoner friend, philosopher friend, um, on, on Atlanta. Yeah, so if people have seen Get Out, he plays the, the guy who gets sort of abducted in the first scene, um, who comes back later and is the one who says, Get out, get out. Uh, Andre. In the movie. Andre, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so then, Evan, you actually interviewed the, uh, the director of the movie. You want to talk about that? Yeah, I interviewed Boots Riley, um, I, if I'm remembering correctly, it was in May. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd known his work as a rapper, um, uh, as a member of the coup. Um, I'm not the world's biggest coup fan. I have friends of mine who could definitely claim that title, but hmm. I was familiar with his work and I knew that their uh, music was always p- politically oriented, um, activist minded, um, left leaning, um, concerned with, uh, you know, uh, 
things that we'd probably call socialist concerns, um, redistribution of wealth and corporate um, malfeasance, uh, you know, uh, very much pointed out in a funny, entertaining way. Um, and that, that, that same ethos shows up in the movie. So I talked to him a little bit um, about that, but mostly the interview I did with him um, that ran on io9 talked about his journey to making getting the film made. You know, uh, his he's always wanted to be a filmmaker. Um, he went to school for filmmaking um, and uh, getting the screenplay play published in uh, McSweeney's um, after being introduced to Dave Ever, Dave, David Eggers. Um, so it, it's what was interesting is that like you know uh, Boots. Um, you know, very easily, uh, talks about, um, his goals, uh, for the movie and his journey, uh, to getting the movie made. Um, you know, talking to him, um, I, I got the sense that he was a very humble, down to earth dude, um, but also with strongly held ideas. You know, the, the, uh, oftentimes I think the way we perceive creativity, um, in mainstream media is that, uh, if you have strong ideas, you have to be really abrasive or um, maladroit so- socially. But Boots was a, a, a good guy to talk to. Um, he clearly, you know, has had 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 a lot of experience talking about his movie when I talked to him. But it, it still felt like um, a very personal and um, important work to him. And I, I think when I spoke to him. Uh, like the first wave of big publicity really hadn't hit for the movie yet or is in process. And, um, um, I think he's very ready to use, um, the movie and the conversations around it to talk about, uh, the politics that are important to him. And I think that's great. It's interesting. I watched a bunch of interviews with him and he was saying, I think it was his father was a, a fairly prominent, um, activist, uh, or, you know, labor organizer sort of person. And, uh, Boots was saying that, we have this Im- that that um, organized sort of activism moved into a stage where it was all about events, about getting people to all get out into the streets and make noise, and that that's important. But that uh, an older school of organization was that you have to get to know people and, and form organizations. And he says that the people who really prospered in that were very um, affable and joking around and were well liked by everybody. You know, people who could organize their workplaces, and so it's interesting you note that that he he does have this this sort of social the sociability about him. And one of the actors, I don't remember who it was, said that I think it was maybe Lakeith, but he was saying that he was just hanging out with Boots in Oakland, and that he just knows everybody in Oakland. They just walk around and people wave to him and say hi and come up and talk to him, and yeah, that he's this this sort of fixture of of the of the Oakland social scene. Yeah, the sense I got, um, I'm talking to him is that he's, you know, he's been in Oakland his entire life. Um, and you know, people I know, uh, who know Oakland better than I, I'm a native New Yorker, but yeah, he's, he's been a fixture of, of Oakland, um, for, for, you know, decades, um, uh, the art and political scenes there. So it's interesting that, uh, he is right dead center, um, of this moment that Oakland is having um, on the screen. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so Tinnery, if let's get you in here, talk about uh, sort of what what did you heard about this movie and kind of what were your first impressions uh, going into it? Well, I, I teach at UCLA, so I heard about it through the grapevine at UCLA. And I think it was in May, in fact, Boots Riley, maybe even the cast, came to the campus and they were going to do a Q&A and a screening. 
And I got on the list, but ultimately could not go and hurt my own feelings so badly because I could, because I just knew, um, I hadn't, I don't like to read a lot about a film before I see it. If there's a lot of excitement, I like to go in knowing as little as possible. And just what little I had heard was that it was just wildly imaginative and the trailer about the code switching and the white voice. I was like, okay, this has my attention. Um, and then finally just saw in the theater, you know, opening weekend with my husband, Stephen Barnes, who's also a science fiction writer. And we, we loved it. Uh, I knew I would love it, but I absolutely loved it. It, it had just this outrageous creativity, really insurgency that meant I couldn't keep ahead of it. Just when I thought I knew where it was going, it would zig left and zag right. And at one point I was afraid I might hit a threshold where it was like, oh, I lost it. I can't hang with this. But instead, <laughs> I just kept getting more excited, like wanting to raise my fist in the theater. <laughs> I, was com- <laughs> I was completely um, riding the film's vibe, you know. And, and by the time, I know this is a spoiler broadcast, so by the time the Equisapiens are revolting, uh, and it was just one of my favorite moments in the film being flung down this rabbit hole and inside screaming, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and, um, the whole way, like finally, you know, someone said it. Aquasapiens, yes, if they could, they would. <laughs> it's just, you know, um, when you start, cause I, I come from, a family of activists. So my, my late mother, Patricia Stevens do spent 49 days in jail with her sister, my aunt Priscilla Clouse in 1960 and other Florida and M university students. She was arrested many, many times in and out of jail. She once told me I went to jail so you wouldn't have to, which I have basically taken to heart. But at the same time, I have a deep appreciation and understanding for protest space movements. Um, this this conversation about um, the purity uh, in the movement and the squabbling and infighting that goes on in movement, even that is is included in the story. But also, I think more importantly, uh, just this visual reminder with context that when we band together, we can create change. You know, I think a lot of people are living in kind of a helpless space right now, and with good reason, you know, in a lot of ways. So, so we have a society where when you start with the dehumanization of mass incarceration, which has been separating families for generations, and then and then also now throwing migrant families and children in cages, it's not that wild a leap that corporations would literally strip us of humanity if it benefited them. And the system would do that. And we can see it in our current political environment. Um, after a bit of outrage in the media, life goes on. Life goes on. It's like, oh, okay, they're making horse people, whatever. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Meanwhile, what's on Netflix this weekend? Um, and I, Evan also talked about the relatability of the characters. Tessa Thompson's Detroit. I just saw a lot of myself in her in the sense of I am an artist and I also have an activist heart, you know, and, and we're always sort of struggling with that question of is the art enough? Is the art effective enough? Really, the most difficult scene in the movie for me is her her art show um, and how, to me, her image of what she was accomplishing was sort of, I don't know, disintegrating for me uh, as it became a harmful kind of imagery in space and a harmful relationship between the od- artist and the audience. So anyway, I just... I really, really love the film. Um, I took uh, one of my best friends to see it with me the second time, and it's just a delight all the way through. Well, let's back up a little bit and talk about, for people who have not seen the movie and maybe haven't even seen the trailer, could you talk about 
what what you were what, what you meant about code switching in the trailer and just kind of what your reaction was to that? Well, sure. You know, the the one thing I did know was this idea of, you know, you're not going to make any sales that way. You have to use your white voice. That question about the white voice. Now, full disclosure, I was raised in the suburbs and bust into an inner city school from the suburbs. So I would have given anything to have a black voice, frankly. That was like my big dream was for people not to be able to hear the suburbs in my voice. Um, but this is a very real question, uh, whether you're buying real estate, uh, the difference in reactions when they talk to you on the phone and then they see you in person and realize you're black. This is all real and it's daily uh, and it's from school to work. It, it just follows us. And this this whole notion of code switching and, and fitting in and putting people at ease with our demeanor, you know, starting with the voice because we are so scary and foreign to people and, and all of this kind of conversation. So if the movie had just been about that alone, I would have loved it as well. But that was just such a small piece of where Sorry to Bother You was going. Right. So the setup of the movie is that there's a young black man played by um, Lakeith Stanfield, and he's um, he lives in his uncle's garage and is uh, really uh, tight. You know, money is really tight. And so the the movie opens with him sort of um, tr- uh, applying for a job at a telemarketing firm and sort of he has a f- uh, uh, like a employee of the month plaque and a big science fair trophy or something that, that turned out to be fake that he's using to. Uh, you know, to apply for this job. I actually heard in an interview, Boots Riley said that a friend of his actually would do stuff like this. And that's where he got the idea for that. <laughs> that's hysterical. Um, but they, they do actually end up hiring him for this telemarketing job. Um, but he just calls people and says, sorry to bother you. And they instantly hang up on him until the guy in the cubicle next to him, played by Danny Glover, tells him that he has to use his white voice. And this is, and this is a sort of magical realism element yeah. where it's just, it's, it's the, the, the actor's voices are dubbed over with what is very obviously a completely different white actor's voice. Yes. Patton Oswalt, I believe, is his voice. And, uh, and I love this distinction that it's not just making your voice sound nasally, you know, like black comedians do in, in comedy shows when they're imitating whites. It's, it's a frame of mind. It's an attitude. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, so from my research, I, I think it was David Cross oh. um, for um, Lakeith Stanfield. And then you're right, Patton Oswald was for um, uh, Amari, um, Amari Hardwick. Hardwick. You're right. My bad. My bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's sort of the basic setup of, of the movie. And so, Craig, what did you think uh, going into the movie? Did you have expectations? What did you think about this, this sort of opening setup stuff? Well, I actually thought that it was completely going to be about uh, code switching. And as it turns out, it really wasn't. I mean, it, that was a piece of it. But the thing that sort of got me was the entire sort of underpinning of it. Um, the white voice is not, is sort of like an aspirational voice. It's not necessarily just sounding white. It's also sounding a sort of, you're completely bought into capitalism kind of mindset. And you're completely bought into selling things. And the fact that his name is Cassius Green, Cash <laughs> Green, it's, a, it's on the nose. But I actually kind of admire the fact that it sort of went there and it sort of made an idea and sort of turned it into a magic, turned symbols into reality. For instance, you know, the guy named Cassius Green, the Equisapiens, the fact that the white voice is literally magical. 
Uh, that's, I went in not expecting it to be as sort of deep as it was. It really struck me as being sort of like a anti-capitalist screed, anti-capitalist slash consumerist screed, sort of hiding in a sort of black comedy of of manners. Um, and a lot of people sort of go in expecting one thing, but it goes completely in a, in a completely opposite direction. And I really admired that about it. And I also admired the fact that he got funding for it because these days movies are so, you know, X-Men meets, I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> the Joy Luck Club or something like that. They're very, they're very segmented the way that they sell them. But this one completely went off the rails and it held it together, but just the entire, uh, way that it was done. It was just wonderful. I love the movie. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that no one is going into this movie expecting this movie, you know? I mean... How could you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, and so, so Tanana Reeve mentions that um, the main character has a girlfriend, um, played by Tessa Thompson. The character's name is Detroit. Um, Craig, what did you think of, the, of that character? Oh, I... People sort of thought that she was kind of a manic pixie dream girl, but I don't think so. I think she was way more, uh, had way more agency and a way more, she was more radical than, uh, than Cash was. And her art was kind of, I didn't particularly like her art, but it was at least confrontational. And, uh, it's funny because I just finished reading, seeing, um, Tessa Thompson in Westworld. And of course you hate, well, spoiler alert, you hate her in that one. But in this one, she was really lovable. Well, right, yeah. So she's an artist and she has, as you say, these very confrontational earrings that she wears throughout uh, the movie. Yes. And she also does sort of performance art uh, where, see, I saw this movie a couple weeks ago now, but but she's sort of mostly naked on stage and people are throwing meat at her uh, and she's wearing sunglasses. Cell that, phones. Is that about right? Cell phones. Cell phones. And then yeah. her, her another part of her performance art, though I'm not sure if it was, is that she would just spin signs around, sort of pointing out how cons empty consumerism is in this sort of weird dystopic world. Because that's another layer, which it, that it was a dystopia. It wasn't like a Hunger Games dystopia, exactly, but it was a dystopia. It was sort of capitalism gone amok. And she sort of was the window into that, reminding people that everything is not all right. This is a little crazy. The world is a little crazy. Well, you mentioned, Craig, that you didn't like her art. Were we meant to like her art, do you think? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that the way that um, she was written is that she was both uh, both intelligent, but at the same time... She was a part of the comedy, too. Her art was kind of a part of the comedy as well. Like, it was sort of like um, what people think uh, a performance artist does in, I don't know, a 1980s performance artist or something. Mm. 
Does anyone disagree with that? Does anyone think that we were supposed to have a more sort of positive uh, outlook on her art? I mean, her art was clearly a political commentary as well. It was, I think, uh, more heavy-handed than the text it was happening in, you know? Um, yes. So it was maybe an element of self-parody to, like, uh, uh, to diffuse any um, um, a critique that people might have about the movie. It was like, look, yes, I know what I'm doing. I'm making a movie about horse people and uh, the, the exploitation of labor. Um, and I'm, I'm showing you that I know what I'm doing, um, and the absurdity of it by placing the same artistic ambitions inside this character who makes art that is, um, very heavy handed. Who is, uh, I, thought, yeah. I thought it was brilliant. Go ahead. I'm Amanda. sorry. I see. No, who, and who is not as great an artist <laughs> as Boots Riley is. Let's just put it that way. You know, that's what you're saying, Evan. She's not, she's trying. Her passion is there. But I, I really found that moment, like this, the second time I saw it, that was my, my time to go grab, um, refreshments to that <laughs> show because it, it really is kind of painful. And I'm sure maybe it's meant also to be painful because it does go on a bit with the people are throwing cell phones at her and they're hitting her hard. I mean, the last time we see her, she's putting a helmet on. It's about to go down, you know, and I don't think. That that's a healthy space for her as an artist. I think all of that, that passion is being slightly misdirected. And what is she bringing out in the audience? You know, that anger, which is ostensibly directed at capitalism and the exploitation of nation's resources is turning into, you know, something out of Shirley Jackson and the lottery. <laughs> you know, it, took a, it takes a real turn there. So I, I find that, uh, kind of brilliant in how badly her art actually played for me well so craig mentioned that there are these dystopian aspects uh evan do you want to talk about that just talk about the dystopian aspects of this this world that the movie creates yeah it's it's very much you know uh a, a fever nightmare of late stage capitalism right um, um where people work as hard as they can um and still can't get by you know um, um cash's uncle uh, presumably has a job, but he's like, you know, several months behind on his mortgage. Um, none of the people at, um, at, uh, the, the call center, um, seemed like they were like flush, you know, except for the power callers. Like even the, the, the manager who's, um, uh, Cash's like best friend in, in the first act of the movie, the guy who keeps on like kind of, uh, preaching about the power callers and whatnot. You see pictures of him, you know, shaking hands with all these powerful people, connected people, but he's, you know, he's kind of grimy and, 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 um, and scattershot. Like he's, he's a, he's a, I think kind of a cautionary tale that, you know, capitalism unto itself is not necessarily going to make you happy. Um, so it's, yeah, it's very dystopian. And then when you get to the, um, the ads about worry free, the, the kind of, modern day uh slavery that's gussied up with um uh uh these political at rather these um commercials um yeah it's it's scary you know you're you're basically talking about surrendering um all, all your agency uh, to be a cog in a machine that's gonna uh, um squeeze you dry um so yeah it, it it's all presented in a very darkly humorous way like Craig said but um it is uh, scary if you think about it. Um, it's parallels to the real world. 
Well, right. And Tanana Reeve was mentioning that too, the sort of parallels between worry-free and the prison industrial complex. Do you want to talk about that? Well, you know, it's just a a basic level of dehumanization that I think worry-free is sort of the first level of. But if you dig more deeply into it, you have an entire plan to make workers even more efficient by turning them into equisapiens, which, again, does not even sound as far-fetched as it should. It really doesn't. And what's so interesting about worry-free, speaking of dystopia, is that it reminds me something straight out of Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower, you know, where very much a dystopian novel uh, where society is falling apart and people have to seek out these kinds of worry-free work environments where they might sell your children from under you, you know, and all this kind of thing, which again speaks to sort of vocabulary we are growing accustomed to as a society. Uh, separating families has been an acceptable practice, as I said, under mass incarceration for, for generations, you know. Um, it's just quiet. It's not in the headlines. When you're in the prison system, uh, you are in a dark hole, as Jordan Peele, you know, said when he, he did uh, get out in terms of what the sunken place is. You're, you're locked in a dark hole. And that is the prison industrial complex. And that is with a shiny sort of veneer, uh, the road worry free leads to because what's in the fine print, you know, <laughs> that's the question. What's in the fine print? Um, so yeah, very dystopian and also the interaction of, uh, consumerism, advertising, media, entertainment. I loved the messaging there overall. Like, for instance, every there were moments in the movie where a political conversation or thought would be interrupted by a television screen showing this inane program. I forget what it was called, where people just get beat up, get the hell beat out of you, I think it's called. Yeah, uh, I got the well, shit kicked out of me, is what it's called. I got the shit, which, you know, could almost be a real show. <laughs> there, there are probably several shows that, that almost fit that <laughs> guideline. It's just a slight exaggeration, and our eye is drawn to it, and it silences conversation, and it silences outrage. Uh, it silences, you know, it, it obscures uh, awareness. So I thought all of that is is just brilliant. Well, right. And so, so Cash learns how to use his white voice and starts making, be, becoming a very successful telemarketer caller. And as um, Evan was pointing out, there's this sort of upstairs where there's this sort of glowing golden elevator and all these well-dressed people. And, and this is held out as if you just work hard, you can ascend to these heights where everything's wonderful. Uh, and so Cash eventually does sort of get kicked upstairs. And so, um, so Craig, do you want to talk about what did you think of when he, uh, when he makes it upstairs? What did you think of that part? Um, I think that what happened is he got seduced by the entire culture of it and he sort of lost his way. And that section of the film was sort of him actually becoming an avatar of his name, Cash Green, because he Mm. sort of loses sight of, for instance, before he moves upstairs, he's a part of the, uh, He's actually a part of the group that wants to rebel against uh, the company. And then he all of a sudden starts rocking across the picket line, and he ends up becoming also a symbol of what not to be when the person throws a rock at him or something and gets hit on the head. Uh, it's a Coke can, isn't it? Yeah, Coke can. it's a Coke can. And... The entire thing about him sort of being seduced into that world 
and slowly, slowly peeling back the layers and seeing how it's really ba based on exploitation uh, was really powerful. And it was very funny, too. It was very funny. Because I could easily see my, you know, I could easily see myself, you know, getting a whole bunch of money and just sort of living in a wonderful house and all that and pretending that everything doesn't exist. Uh, every, the horror doesn't exist. Well, Ren, let's set that up because there's um, the the sort of lower level telemarketers who who Cash is left behind, and so there's uh, his friends played by um, Jermaine Fowler. His name is Salvador, I think, and then there's this uh, this guy Squeeze, plays by, played by Stephen Yun, who's um, this guy. He sort of goes from um, business to business, organize trying to organize the the workers. Um, and then his girlfriend Detroit has has started working at this call center, and so yeah, and so 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 they're all trying to organize a, a strike. And I agree with you, Craig, that the movie does a really good job of just making you feel how how scary it is going on strike, and how you know how, how cash, you know how how difficult this is is for him to to to, to give up this uh, you know the stuff he's gotten, even though it's turned out to not be as great as he sort of thought it was going to be. But, he ends um, up saving his uncle, his uncle's house from foreclosure. So you kind of see where he's coming from, where the seduction comes from. Yeah. Tananarif, what did you think of the uh, the the strike and the um, cash crossing the picket line and stuff? Well, let's look at you know the parallels. If you if you work hard, uh, you might go to the big house. <laughs> that's kind of what I saw. That's tried and true. Uh, if you're in prison and you're good, you might become a trustee. You know. Um, and therefore become a de facto oppressor. And I thought it was illustrated really, really well with a lot of quirkiness, uh, in terms of the, uh, the complication of the, the password in the elevator having an impossible n n number of numbers to remember. <laughs> um, and the way, um, the woman was immediately turning her sexual energy toward him, you know, kind of those expected benefits of success to keep people, I guess, sharp. I don't know. But every moment of it seemed very well thought out uh, from the workspace to to uh, the the timing of how he had to cross the line just as the organizing is starting and, and, and how difficult it is to sustain movement um, on many levels, not just because people are seduced by by power, and I think our human drive to do something well, to excel at something, to feel, you know, I, it's, it's a very human, uh, predicament. I remember when I was in college, I was thrilled to be offered a chance to work at a local news station on election night. And it was only later I learned that the reason we were invited was because the workers were on strike, you know? And, uh, so I, I had been sort of tricked by a professor into crossing a picket line. I didn't realize was going to be there or was there. I didn't know what was going on, you know? Um, and in his case, he, he has this uncle, like you said, and he has a, a, a good woman and, and he, he, he wants to excel. And it's very, very difficult, uh, to, to fight that temptation uh, in the face of uncertainty. One comment about the movie that uh, really struck me is this is Brianna Joy Gray in The Intercept. She says, after seeing the film, I struggled to recall an instance in which a labor strike had been represented at all in mainstream cinema, much less depicted heroically. Um, Evan, what do you think about that? Do you, uh, do you agree with that, uh, that it's, it's pretty unusual? Yeah, it's definitely unusual. The only... Uh, um 
example that comes to mind for me is the old Sally Sally Field movie. Um, Norma Ray. Uh, uh, one more time to Nana Reeve. Norma oh, Ray. Norma Ray. That's right. Norma Ray. Yeah, that's the only thing I can think of in memory. I'm um, maybe nine to five if you want to be generous in your um, <laughs> um, uh, reading of it. But um, yeah, it's definitely not a mainstream idea or 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 something that we see portrayed that much. What really got to me about the labor um, politics thematics about this movie um, was how it echoed some of the realizations I had um, when when I was part of a, a, a organized workers organization movement. I, I wasn't a big part of it at all. I was rank and file, but um, a couple of years ago, uh, Gawker Media. Uh, organized uh, to become part of the Writers Guild, um, Writers Guild of America, the the East chapter. Um, And, uh, you know, we had lots of conversations about whether this is a thing we wanted to do or not. Um, And one of the things that those conversations highlighted is something that we all know about capitalism, but we choose to turn a blind eye to, which is in order for uh, one person or a few people to be successful, um, a lot of people have to be unsuccessful, right? Or, or, uh, less financially secure, um, so that we can prop up this myth that, um, um, America's a place where you can, you know, become rich just by working hard. Um, eventually, um, as you move up the, the ladders of socioeconomic status, uh, other people, it's other people's labor that's going to make you rich and not your own. Um, and the, the movie really puts that in, in crystal clear terms. Um, and, and it also presents equally as clearly how, um, workers have to organize to, to secure their own well-being, um, and, and their futures in a system like capitalism, right? Uh, um, one thing that I've been seeing across my cohort, people who work in media and, and there's lots of different organizations that are, that are, um, organizing now and, 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 and creating unions is that, yeah, it's really the, the, the idea that is better to work as a collective, um, not just for yourself as an individual, but as for a whole, like this is, a better thing for the industry as a whole. Um, and I'm talking about like, you know, internet editorial as a very, you know, small niche portion of, uh, the, the area I have awareness and personal involvement with. But yeah, you know, when it comes time to negotiate better, um, pay or time off or, or, uh, you know, any, any issue that can affect an individual person, it, it's better to do it collectively because uh, the, the the next time the problem comes up, somebody else will have the benefit of um, prior experience, of a template, of, of a roadmap um, to address these issues as opposed to um, dealing with a manager who could easily say, this has never happened before. You're an anomaly. Go sit down and be quiet. Um, so that stuff, the, the labor uh, thematics of, of Sorry to Bother You are excellent in that regard. Because, um, you see after that first strike, um, um, the power that collective movement can have, um, on a corporate level, 
like two corporate actors. You can see you can see them kind of stunned and cowed. Um, and, and it's a powerful thing. Well, you were saying, Evan, that the movie kind of reminds you. I'm not familiar with the movie you mentioned, Norma Ray. Is that what's called? Uh, I feel so old right now. I was the one who mentioned it. But yeah, um, it's, I, if I remember correctly, Sally Field plays a mem- uh, uh, somebody who works in an auto plant. No, it's um, a textile worker. She's a textile. textile right. Um, yeah, you 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 take a ten out of review. Actually, that's the uh, Craig. Craig seems to know the plot better than than, than we do. And she leads a she leads a, a strike against uh, people. Yeah, it's a very stirring performance. It's probably one of Sally Field's best, most beloved performances, which is why it's it's actually interesting that so few films take up this question of of labor movement when all of us work. You know, it's. It's an insidious part, frankly, of, of our system. Uh, people have been sort of cowed uh, into some people believing unions are bad. You know, they're so corrupt, they're so bad. And then it's such a struggle to create them. And there's risk involved in, in creating them. And, and the workplace is often the last place you want to create risk. It's interesting when you mentioned that, how, you know, this, this issue of how few movies handle these kinds of issues. I also was thinking of something that Boots Riley said in an interview I, I listened to where he said that he wanted, it was really important to him that the first time we see, um, Cash, he's sort of having this existential crisis and like, what is, what does my life mean? Is anyone going to remember me after I'm dead and all this kind of stuff? And he said that you almost never see black characters express those sorts of sentiments. And it was really important to him to do that in this movie. Well, that's great. And yeah, and, and that I think speaks to how we do want to, to matter on one level, you know, um, and, and for a lot of us, that means through our, our work, whether it's art or, or whether it's behind a desk, whatever work we do, I, that is deeply inbred in us, I think, uh, just wanting to shine in some way and to have mattered. And, you know, there's so much room. You could almost name uh, 50 things right now that we haven't seen depicted on film for black men or black women. Uh, there's so much room for what hasn't been shown uh, in the nuance of, of who we are as human beings. I mean, do you want to just name a couple? Like, what would you that you would well, like even a, even exploring love stories is a big one for me, uh, which is why I like Detroit so much. I like the fact that this was a relationship story and it was a flawed relationship, but it was not a vitriolic relationship, even though they had problems. Uh, it remained a loving and supportive relationship even through the problems, and and ultimately it was a philosophical issue driving them apart, which is so real in movement spaces. Um, and and I, I understand from recent reading that the nudity was stripped out of this film so that there, it wouldn't be catering to a male gaze, which I'm all here for, you know, as I've, I've just as an artist, not an actress, but it's always bothered me so much that had I wanted to be an actress, that's like sort of a rite of passage. <laughs> you have to be naked. Why? What? What does that have to do with my craft? You know, um, so good for Tessa Thompson. This is the second role. She's had as the girlfriend, um, another one in Creed, where I thought they were, uh, nuanced and realistic and, and really great characters. Also, the other, the other thing, oh, sorry, Craig, I cut you off. Go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to mention the fact that it was nice to see a film that centered black people, but it was not just sort of like a, 
Tyler Perry side movie. It was about, it was a dystopia and it was a comedy, but not sort of like a Tyler Perry type comedy, but a sort of serious comedy because a lot of movies sort of, they, they kind of turn movies into sort of black movies in a way that, uh, in the way that they're marketed and, and I like the fact that this movie sort of, it was about race, but it wasn't necessarily just marketed to a black audience. And it showed black people in a different setting than we usually see them in. Uh, one of the things I loved about this movie in terms of portrayals of black life and the multiplicity that we uh, don't see enough of, like Tanana Reeve just mentioned, there's that scene where Cassius and Salvador, um, played by Jermaine Fowler, where they're getting each other's faces. This is, um, mm. I think, I think this is after he crosses the picket line for the first time. And, um, they get into each other's face and they're about to fight and they're throwing insults at each other. And the, the scene is like teeming with this machismo and this aggressive energy. And you feel like, oh, they're about to come to blows. It's about to go down. But they just keep, uh, yelling at each other and, it doesn't do the expected street fight kind of thing. They 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 draw at each other. They yell, but it, they don't fight. And it was an interesting moment of like subverting expectations about what conflict looks like or has to look like, and how it can possibly be resolved. That wasn't a real resolution, but the uh, the, the there's still that moment where. Um, they really, really seem like they were going to fight. And, and they have philosophical differences, but it doesn't necessarily have to turn into physical violence. <laughs> You're like, you smell great, brother. What are you wearing? Oh, nothing. <laughs> it's just my natural scent. Um, and yes. It was hilarious. It was. Um, but also, when you uh, so when I saw it the second time, I was like, wow, you know what? Like, that's a way of having a fight without having a fight. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, and a way of and communicating that these guys still mean something to each other. They're just on different sides of a of a certain political spectrum right now. And I heard Roots, uh, Boots Riley say that his brother was in a confrontation exactly like that. And for years, he was like, <laughs> "I got to use this in a movie somewhere. This is this is great. <laughs> it is great. It is a great moment. And again, as with the relationship with Detroit, um, conflict uh, avoidance. You know, I mean, yeah, they have the conflict, but it doesn't have to go the melodramatic or stereotypical route." either in film or in life. And later when they reconcile, um, it's all the more beautiful. You know, they're sitting in the, in, in that restaurant and squeeze and, and, and Salvador and Cassius are all talking. And, you know, this is after Cassius has done his big revelation to try and tell the people, uh, about the, the Equisapiens. And, you know, he's frustrated and they're like, Hey, you know, basically you fucked up, but we're still here for you. You saw the error of your ways. Um, and it's a very generous and forgiving mode of interaction um, that sometimes the demands of drama and filmmaking and theater um, make you forget is possible to put on the screen or the stage. Well, so we keep mentioning Equisapiens. I feel like people who haven't seen the movie are probably very confused about what's what's going on with that. But so so let's uh, set that up. So, okay, so the, um, the worry-free corporation has this sort of douchebag CEO um, played by Army Hammer, uh, who's a very sort of 
he's like a like an Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos kind of bro, like like Silicon Valley bro. Yeah, he's a, he's a, he's, a, he's a prototypical tech bro. Uh, and David, before we spoil this this part of the movie, let me just say one of the amazing things about the discourse and the success of Sorry to Bother You is. Um, it's not a thing that's been spoiled largely on Twitter. Like I'm on Twitter every day. No. And, and I do not see people talking about the main plot point of this movie, um, which is a thing that is deserving of, of discourse and, 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 you know, all the conversations that, that you can have on Twitter. But people have been really vigilant about not spoiling this movie. And I think it's wonderful. So now that said, let's spoil it. <laughs> well, well, yeah. And actually, before we, before we spoil it 100%, I'll just say that I, I watched the movie and I was like, I got to talk to people about this, but no one, you know, no one had seen it. But I, I started, so I told my dad the whole plot of the movie and then I told my girlfriend the whole plot of the movie and she really wanted to know what the, 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 what, what, the, what they looked like, the, 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 the thing that happens. And I went online. I couldn't, no, nothing, nothing I did. I could not find an image from the movie of yeah. those, of, of what happens at the end, uh, which, which really surprised me. But yeah, it speaks to what you were saying about how, how keep how people have been keeping it under wraps yeah yeah half horse half human uh larger than humans uh distorted faces and uh large genitalia <laughs> right right <laughs> very large <laughs> so so what's what to me was amazing about the equisapiens is in all honesty and this is the moment now where cassius has sort of had his meeting with the tech bro and uh is Actually, Tanner, let's let's like um like draw a bridge to that. Okay. So, so could you just tell us? So yeah, so so Cash is um he's been he's upstairs and he finds out that upstairs he's now he's selling, uh, weapon systems and and uh, contract slave labor and stuff and and so this is even more, uh, ethically problematic than what he was doing before. But he he keeps doing it and he's so successful he gets invited to a party. At the uh, the CEO's house, the guy's name is Steve Lifts, I think, right? Yes. Um, could you just talk about what? Just just talk us through that. Where he when he goes to this party? Well, you know, sex, revelry, and drugs, as you might imagine. But also, it becomes clear that he's going to be the pet Negro, you know, at the party. And one of the most memorable scenes is when this basically all white crowd demands that he rap, you know, entertain us, you know, do something, you, know, you have to do something. You've never capped anybody, you know, every stereotype uh, you can think of as son of this guy. And then his painful attempt to rap when he finally just gives up and is basically inward, inward, inward. I was going to do the real thing, but no, inward, inward, inward. And then they start chanting it back. And it's like one of the, also another surreal layer to the movie, it's like you're really Alice just falling <laughs> through different levels of the looking glass. So by the time he stumbles away from all his new information and, and how uh, awful the job is and the terrible things he would be doing and how badly he's being treated and he ends up in this, uh, dark hallway, walks in a room, uh, where he thought he was directed to a bathroom and hears someone calling for help, opens a stall and there's this half man, half horse, lying on the ground basically saying help me and this was me in the audience going oh no it's gonna lose me it's gonna lose me because <laughs> i had no idea i mean i it, it's like just a stunning revelation in the film it, there it's from completely nowhere and it really though redeems itself so much to me when the this master plan emerges where steve lift is is planning basically to make cassius the king of the 
the equihumans, uh, or equisapiens rather, you know, sort of their guy on the inside so he can infiltrate them and help subvert their movement before it even begins. I mean, they're planning for a revolution and already how, okay, if we make them, they're going to rebel. So here's what we'll do. They've got it planned out like six steps in advance. It's deep. It's deep. And, uh, by the time Cassius is in the police truck and only has a slit of a view to see this protest that is getting more and more violent outside and the Equisapiens show up and you realize the revolution has started. It was just such an exciting moment for me <laughs> watching the film. Uh, see, Craig, what did you think of the, uh, the Equisapiens uh, reveal? I thought that it was uh, so completely out of... I, it was one of those things that uh, I'm so glad that no one told me about it. I went in <clears throat> completely blind, knowing that it was going completely crazy. Um, I love that reveal. Um, I love the fact that the horse... That there is a sort of viewpoint in which they turn the Equisapiens into like a... Sort of like a, the way they treated African-American labor in terms of the way it was sexualized mm -hmm. and that sort of the way. Oh, yeah, it was, it, that was definitely intentional. When right, Steve Bliss talks about, talks about uh, the horse penis to Cassius, he talks about it as a plus. You get a horse right, like, exactly. Yeah. Um, I thought that the entire thing where, you know, one of the Equisapiens was uh, Horace Whitaker. <laughs> Which the voice of, yeah, so that, so I think that there was sort of a subtext that most of the Equisapiens were people of color. I think that that was intentional. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it was, a it was very powerful and very funny too. What did you think about, you know, Tananarive was saying that it wasn't foreshadowed at all. I mean, I, I didn't notice any foreshadowing. Do you think, does anyone think there should have been more foreshadowing? Like, that we knew there was something going, like there was a, you know, the company had a horse logo. Or just like, we knew that they, there was something going on with horses. Or did it work for you that it just comes so completely out of left field? Or did you, do you agree that it came completely out, out of left field? So the second time I saw the movie, um, a lot, a, a, a bunch more details showed up. Um, I could be, uh, remembering this poorly, but I feel like the, the dude in the picture, that little avatar that's kind of like Cash's, uh, conscious throughout the whole movie. Um, I feel like the car he's standing next to is a Mustang. Oh, I could, get out. <laughs> oh, <my gosh. laughs> that's hilarious. That's a double, that's a triple pun at that point. Uh, to that reef. And I, I remember for sure that, um, when Steve Lift offers, like, um, the substance that we're led to believe is cocaine um, to Cassius. He gives it to him on a plate with like a horse's head on it. Um, oh, right. It has like a, it has like an equestrian theme to it. Um, and he snorts the, he snorts, snorts that powder up. Um, and the second time I saw it, I was like, oh damn, it is right there smacking you in the face. And there's also the other part where the horses, it's sort of like um, when the reveal is sort of revealed to the rest of the world they're sort of like huh <laughs> like the stocks for uh steve lift's company actually go up and everyone's talking about it as a, a major innovation that part was also brilliant too the fact that people were just sort of like oh we're making people into horses big deal 
Yeah, I thought that rang so true, you know, living in this this current administration where every time something has happened with that, oh, well, that's it. <laughs> They're done for now. <laughs> you know, it rolls a couple of new cycles roll around and nope, it's gone. It's gone. It like well, just... <laughs> No, exactly. And this is something that rings so false to me about so many dystopian science fiction movies is that, you know, there some corporation is secretly uh, harvesting organs or something like that. And, and the heroes just have to get the word out and then everything will be fine. And the corporation will, you know, the CEO will get taken to jail and stuff. And I never buy that, you know, uh, whenever I see it in any sort of dystopian science fiction movie, I'm always like, no, this would be completely legal you know this corporation would be would have all the politicians in their pocket uh they wouldn't need to keep it secret and if they were keeping it secret it wouldn't matter you know because of apathy exactly like you're saying so yeah i I thought that that yeah that that um redeemed a lot of uh sort of unpersuasive dystopian plots for me yeah so you would say sort of like soyven green is made out of people and eh. <laughs> that right. sort of thing. Fake then, news, fake news. Fake news. And also the reveal, <laughs> the way he has to reveal it is that he goes on that show. The Will you be punched on, you know, punched in the balls or whatever it's called. And actually, he has to actually be punched before he finally reveals it. And remember, literally covered in yes. feces. Yes. Head, head to toe. Yes. So, wow. Well, it's it's funny you mention uh, getting kicked in the balls or whatever, because th- th- in this show, it's I got the shit kicked out of me. But in Idiocracy, the show everyone watches is called Ow My Balls. Oh, and um, this reminded me like I, I, when I walked out of the theater, I was like, that's unlike anything I've ever seen before. But after sort of racking my brain, uh, Idiocracy was one of the few things I could come up with that were sort of like sort of in the same ballpark, um, and uh, and that was one of yeah that and that was one of them the the owl my balls kind of thing. But I saw one. Uh, so Josiah Hughes from Exclaim says uh, this belongs to a rich tradition of satires, including he says Idiocracy, UHF, the owl, um, the Weird Al Yankovic movie, and then he also mentions Pootie Tang and Putney Swope. Um, that I'm not familiar with, but I think Evan, did you mention Putney Swope or did that? Come yeah, up in an I, interview? I it, when I when I talked, I've seen some of the comparisons to Putney Swope too, and um, I talked to Boots about it um, when we spoke during the interview, and um, he said it was a movie he hadn't seen. Um, hold on, let me go look in the interview. Yeah, uh, he said I've never seen Putney Swope. We talked in um, late May, if I remember correctly, or early June. Um, yeah. Like, could, so, you, could you just say what that is? Like, do you see, do you see? Yeah. Putney Swope you... is a kind of corporate satire directed by Robert Downey Sr. Um, in which, uh, a black laborer, it gets promoted to CEO in a corporation and his voice, um, is overdubbed with, uh, a white man's. I believe it's Downey Sr. himself. Um, and there's a lot of revolutionary politics. This was in the uh, late 60s or early 70s, if I remember correctly. And there are politics of black power and um, a black liberation. And um, it, was, it had an anti-corporate stance as well. So, you know, uh, on a superficial level, it seems, you know, to be operating in a similar notional space to Sorry to Bother You. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I think Sorry to Bother You is very much its own thing, though, and it has an energy of the moment and of uh, a black culture, black cultural practice at its core 
that um, Putney School didn't didn't have. Well, you know, one one headline I saw it said something like. Um... Sorry to bother you and get out are part of a new wave of black surrealist filmmaking or something like that. Um, and I know Tanana Reeve, you, you teach a, a class in um, black cinema, black horror cinema. Do you do you agree with that? Do you do you see these? Is there a would you say it's sort of a, a wave of these types of films? Well, it's funny you mention that because uh, actually there I have noticed a lot of Afro surrealism. Uh, at the forefront of entertainment now. Um, I think of Get Out more as horror. There were a lot of comparisons to Get Out. Some of them made just completely in ignorance, black film, black film. But uh, some people might argue that Get Out is also, also Afro-surrealist. Uh, although to me, I, it, it's more horror, you know. But these categories all merge, you know, and they're all under the umbrella of what I would call Afrofuturism, which is the black speculative arts. But Afro-surrealism, that term was coined long before the term Afrofuturism was even coined back in 1974 by Amiri Baraka. And it is this sort of dream logic storytelling that has uh, race, uh, not at the center, as Craig says, but in this case, the fact that Lakeith Stanfield is a black actor is, you know, pretty inarguable that, that it's addressing um, at least erasure of black people. <laughs> You know, in these kinds of films. And there are some more subtle, specific racial messages in it, which I do think absolutely would qualify it as Afro-surrealism. And I don't think it's coincidental that Lakeith Stanfield would be attracted to this project when you look at the work he's been doing in Atlanta, which has also become delightfully, you know, surrealistic, especially in season two. Um, and anyone who's not familiar with Atlanta, when Donald Glover was at Saturday Night Live, he said, and black people know me from Atlanta. And I just groaned. It's like, <laughs> oh, my God, everybody should know you from Atlanta. So please, you know, just watch season two if you if you need to just jump in. Um, and it's a way of addressing just that which makes no sense in a way that makes sense is what I would say it is. You know, um, it it helps bring issues to the forefront, these absurd sorts of programming we watch, uh, the absurd existence of capitalism, frankly, um, and make it look as absurd as it is. And, and that's very empowering and hopefully educational to, to people. I also would say that it's kind of in conversation with something that's already been happening in black literature. I'm thinking of the work of Ishmael Reed. I'm yes. thinking of Paul Beatty, the sout, the sellout. And oh, also, man. um, what is that Colson Whitehead work yes. also is Afro surreal, you know, like the entire book, uh, the intuitionist is about, you know, the world where elevators have two different schools of thought and the first black elevator and investigator. And of course, underground railroad. And it's funny because I think that it's more in conversation with those literary pieces than it is with just movies. Good point. Yeah, the, the the sellout is I'm actually working on an essay where I talk about this kind of stuff. And uh the sellout is a book that seems to like be vibrating at the exact same frequency as this movie. Um and they were created uh, by different people in different um media spaces, but uh I'm a big Paul Beatty fan and uh, and I think the white boy shuffle is one of the best novels to ever come out in the 20th century. Um, that aside, yeah, it's, it, it is very much of a piece of, of, um, those works that everybody's mentioned. But I think, 
Um, the thing that's kind of frustrated me a little bit in the conversations around Sorry to Bother You is people don't talk about it as science fiction. It's a piece of science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great piece of science fiction. Um, and the, the thing about it that, um, is that it connects to, um, a long tradition of science fiction talking about social ills and, um, exploitation and, um, injustices, um, through, uh, through metaphor. Uh, that's the thing about, uh, sorry to bother you that makes it very solidly science fiction to me from a thematic aspect, from its actual plot mechanics. Um, you know, it's talking about genetic manipulation and, and <laughs> hybridization. You know, we're, we're living in a world where, uh, genetic, genetic experimentation on animals happens all the time. Um, and it's often presented as a boon, as something that's going to make our lives easier or better in the future. Um, but we all know that the, the, the gap between experimenting on animals and people, um, is very, very small, especially as pertains to black people. We don't, we can look, you know, at the Tuskegee experiments, um, as an example of that. Um, um, speak on it, speak on it. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, I mean, you know, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's where we get used as a, uh, case study. Um, for something that affects society as a whole. Um, but individual black lives get, um, impacted and harmed. You know, you can also look at Henrietta Lacks and, yep. and um, the way her body was actually profited off of. Um, and to, to the greater good, yes, but the, no compensa- no amount of compensation can ever be made for, you know, creating treatment for illnesses, uh, from the black bodies. Um, when those individual people did so without consent or or compensation. And I think it's worth noting, and those are great points, Evan, um, that the Tuskegee experiment and, and the fact that these men who had syphilis were not given the penicillin cure even after it was introduced, which was the particular insidiousness of it. So it's not just you're doing a study, but you're doing a study after you've already figured out um, what the cure is. And, and syphilis is a, is a long, painful death. So it had a chilling effect on, um, you know, uh, especially the older generation and, and probably till now with people who don't trust the doctor, you know, and, and don't see after their health the way they should because of this fear. My mother, when I said I wanted to be an organ donor on my driver's license was like, no, don't, don't say that because clearly her assumption was they would let me die to have that or- organ. That, that I, I would be more, my organ would be more value than my life. So, so this is all real. And it also, you know, I personally have never submitted my DNA to one of these, um, sequencing, um, operations because, you know, lately it's come out where that data winds up in places, uh, you don't necessarily have control over. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's, a, there's an issue of consent over it, but, you know, um, Consent can be overridden. You know, you can check off a box that says, Hey, I don't want you guys sending my DNA to federal agencies. Federal agencies, um, and governments can write laws that get around that stuff. So, um, and, and that, you know, and that skepticism, as conspiracy minded as it may sound, has, um, its roots in real practices. I want to go back, Evan, to what you were saying about this being science fiction. Um, Boots Riley consistently describes this movie as, quote, absurdist stark comedy with magical realism and science fiction elements. Um, could you just say a little bit more about how you situate this? Uh, as you, you said that this isn't a tradition of other science fiction stories. Could you talk about where it fits in 
among those other science fiction stories? Yeah, I mean, you know, you can you could look at something like um, Isaac Asimov's, um, uh, I think it was in the Foundation trilogy where he put the um, the laws of robotics out. Um, I may have the actual work wrong, um, but it, if the laws of robotics are, 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 I think, a powerful metaphor for the civil rights movement, they weren't contemporaneous with each other. Um, but, you know, when you talk about the laws of robotics, it's basically guidelines for how a sentient being can act, you know, and those weren't well-meaning, but ultimately limiting. And, you know, you look the way le- legislation has affected um Black people's agency throughout the centuries, and you can say the same thing: well-meaning, but ultimately um, harmful. Uh, and and you know that's science fiction. You you look at you know obviously Star Trek um, under the original vision of Gene Roddenberry um, dealt with racism and uh, uh, and Korean Vietnam War and um, what it meant for uh, different political factions to fight a- against each other. Um, and the individual cost of that. Um, and, you know, he, he tried to envision a world where uh, the racism we knew it um, at the time didn't exist, but, you know, he, he still imagined it um, to persist in other forms. So, you know, I, I, sorry to bother you, it obviously isn't like space opera or um, it isn't like hard science fiction, futuristic sci-fi, um, like some of the other things I named, but um, the metaphorical freedom of science fiction has always let creators deal with um, the contemporary divisive injustices in the, their present day. And I think Sorry, Sorry to Bother You is very much in that tra- tradition. Yeah, and again, I have to throw out Octavia Butler. I think readers of Octavia Butler would be on the wavelength, even though she is devoid of humor <laughs> almost completely in her work. Um that near future vision uh, of the dystopia, uh, capitalism run amok, uh, basically individuals left uh, to their own accord, uh, that that's all uh, embedded in Sorry to Bother You. It's interesting because, you know, I listened to an interview with Boots Riley where he was saying he, he sort of got to a point in the screenplay where something, you know, um, Cash has to see something that shocks him out of his complacency. But this isn't a world where people are okay with slavery. So, so what can happen that, that, that is a shock to his system and that only a science fiction element, um, can sort of ratchet it up to the mm-hmm. level that he needed it to, to have that sort of intensity? Yeah, a science fiction element, but also a science fiction element that feels near fetched. You know, like as shocking mm-hmm. as the Equisapien was at first glance. When you understand the whole plan and program, it makes perfect sense. It's almost like, oh, of course they would do that. (laughs) So, yeah, good on him. Well, I would also like to point out that a while ago, I actually went to the National Academy of Sciences, and I heard Sherry Renee Thomas, along with a bunch of other people, talking about genetic the future of genetic editing and they actually have this thing called CRISPR where you can actually edit people's well right now they only do animals but they can edit people and make your make sure that you have certain genetic qualities that come out and it's a real thing it's not imagined at all so it was as weird as the Equisapiens was, it wasn't completely off the track. 
Um, it also reminded me in many ways of the science fiction part of it. Kind of reminded me of the Oryx and Crake issue of Margaret mm-hmm. Atwood, where it's genetic editing run amok. And also, in terms of Octavia Butler, it reminded me of her Lilith's Brood. Mm -hmm. Uh, series Mm -hmm. where you have these aliens that come and they're basically just raping human beings and it's good but it's bad you know the entire issue of of what's happening and what is good and what is bad and how people sort of the power differentials how she explored that one thing I want to add uh, um, to piggyback on something that Tanana Reeve was saying was uh is that you know that use of genre conventions um to illuminate the lived experiences of black people is i think the 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 biggest thing that sorry to bother you has in common with get out um you know obviously jordan peele brilliantly used you know uh uh some very some very familiar horror tropes um you're in a location all by yourself Surrounded by people you don't know, um, the, the 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 body switching, you know, uh, uh, abduction, um, experimentation, um, mad scientist type ex- experimentation. He used those all to talk about what it's like to be a black person in uh, America and have your your culture and your body commodified in a way that you don't you yourself don't get to profit from. And um, you know, in very, in a very real way, Boots Riley did some of the same things thematically, um, but through different, um, plot mechanics, um, he did the same, he did the same kind of thing and sorry to bother you. So I think if there's, if those, uh, projects are kindred in any way, that's probably the way that, that they're related to each other strongest. I want to talk before we run out of time. I want to talk about the very ending of this movie where there's this sort of uprise, you know, um, cash is part of, part of this uprising of the Equisapiens and they're breaking down, uh, Steve Lift's door and, you know, busting into his house and stuff. And one of the articles or one of the reviews I read, it was saying like, Oh, this is kind of, you know, this is kind of like a black mirror story, but in the black mirror story, it's always the, the end is virtually always, we're totally fucked. There's nothing we can do. The system grinds you down and there's no fighting it. And this was very much the opposite of that. And I thought that that was an interesting, you know, this interestingly original dystopian story in that way as well is that it, and it's not just, you know, like Neo discovers he has the power to like change the matrix or whatever, but it's, it's, it's like, again, this sort of, um, organize, you know, labor organizing class struggle kind of message. The movie is ultimately very hopeful. Which, um, given the, the tonalities it walks you through, um, is very, um, surprising for that to be the ultimate end that, yes, we can affect a revolution, you know, even, even as the systems in which we operate dehumanize us and transform us into, you know, just meaningly, meaningless meat sacks meant for labor. Even throughout all those um, terrible circumstances, you can affect revolution that changes your lives and the lives of uh, uh, other people and ultimately the world. Um, it's not at all where I thought it was going to wind up. But when, when the Equisapiens storm Steve Lift's house, I'm like, oh, shit, it's on. Like this, <laughs> this is 
the it's not just it's not just that they're gonna die the horrible lives of of being half man half man animal they're gonna seize their political power um um physically um violently and 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 make sure that this doesn't happen to other people i mean that's how i read uh, the ending of the movie Right. I, I, I agree that it was to me an uplifting ending, you know, and, and it's the opposite of there's nothing we can do. There's everything we can do. And, you know, uh, movement doesn't have to end in, in storming and whatnot, but that is on the table too sometimes. And also there's organizing and also there's just awareness of, of, of how we spend our money, where we spend our money. There are so many things we can do. So, and, and, while resolving conflicts with our own, which I think is so important. Um, it's to me one of those most important and resonant messages of positivity in this film is about creating, um, partnership and brotherhood, uh, despite differences, which is where a lot of movement spaces trip up, you know, and, and you, you see modern day activists read the history of movement and say, well, we're not going to fall into those traps that, that our parents fell into. And they do, because guess what? It's human nature. And it's, you know, sometimes the enemy is us. We, we have to learn how to work together to affect change. I'm curious how you guys just emotionally felt coming out of this movie, because it does have this sort of triumphant ending, but I felt unbelievably unsettled and like mind fucked coming out of the movie it it, it, like really took me a while to sort of like for the world to seem real again after i walked out of it um so i'm just kind of curious craig how did you what was your how would you describe your emotional state walking out of the theater i actually walked out and told the person who i was with and i said what the hell did I just see? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I enjoyed it, but it was the first movie I've seen in a long, long time where it's just this beautiful mess is what I would call it. I, I just love the fact that it, it completely defied everything. Cause most movies, like I said, they have the first act, the second act, and then the third act. You know how it's all going to end. And I had no idea where it was going to end. And even that sort of last scene, the way that, you know, it ended, it was dark, but it was also light. It, it was, it was real, um, what do you call it? It was real sort of mind screwy. I love that about it. And that's kind of what I, how I felt. I felt like, you know, gloriously jolted into, you know, seeing the world in a certain way. I mean, is there anything, Craig, you would change about the movie, or you said you like it as the a mess? I mean, is there anything you would sort of like make unmessy, or do you think you would just keep it the way it is? I would actually keep it the way it is. That's kind of what there's a sort of gorilla aspect uh, aspect to it that I actually like. I like the fact that it was sort of messy and sort of tonally the tonal shifts were crazy. I like that part. That was my favorite part about it. Uh, well, how about Evan and Tanneri? If there's anything, do you have any criticisms of the movie or anything that you would change? Um, not a criticism, just a, an emotional reaction, which was, you know, the movie makes you uncomfortable in a way that, uh, it's hard to face, you know, like worry free is clearly meant to be an analog for an operation like Amazon, right? Where 
the working conditions have been roundly um, criticized and the reporting that's been done on them. And, um, you know, you could certainly read uh, Steve Lift as an analog for Jeff Bezos and people who are um, insanely rich like that. Um, you know, but the next time I used Amazon to get something delivered to my house, uh, I felt really bad about it. Um, and, and, you know, I have, there have been a few instances where it's been like, oh, you know what? Go to the store instead. Support a local business instead. You know, maybe a small business. Walmart. Um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's small things, right? And it's small, and, and there's small actions that can feel meaningless, um, or ineffectual by themselves. But one of the messages of the movie is that these small things we do, can have um, uh, can aggregate into large social movements. You know, it's all it takes is ten people hanging up their phones when it's peak call time, and all of a sudden um, the company loses enough profit that it makes them take notice. Um, and you have a platform to negotiate on now. Um, yeah, so the, the movie definitely made me think about you know the ways in which we are all complicit in. Um, this late stage capitalism being horrific, a horrific system to operate under. Um, so yeah, that's a hard thing to, to, to deal with. Um, I think it's totally intentional and it's all also totally useful. Yeah. Even the, the moments that made me the most uncomfortable going back to Detroit's, um, art show, her performance art piece. I, I wouldn't change it. It's just, um, it's hard to watch. It was hard. It was hard to see. It was hard to see that done to her. Um, and the, it was a painful message behind the art too, as well. So yes, struggling with, you know, the fact that I use this little handheld computer every day that, that causes a lot of pain and hardship and some suicides and factories in China, you know, and, and really engaging with how we as individuals can enact change. Uh, our house is trying to transition to water bottles instead of using plastic water bottles, you know, the disposable ones, the filtered ones. And it's, it's tough. Even a little thing like that is a really tough change for an, a household, but it is individual actions. I mean, I know from my mother's stories that those big marches of a thousand people always started with a conversation between two or three. And that's what movement is, and it's lonely, and it can feel ineffective until suddenly it isn't, until suddenly it catches fire, and you have the March on Washington. Um, and for that reason, I I left the the movie just feeling excited, uh, a, a little bit overwhelmed because there was a lot of sensory information I was still processing. <laughs> I was still processing and was for a while, but even like like. Craig said the messiness of it, the comic, it's like, yes, it's just like in your face and it's this way, it's that way. But it was all in service of a story that is pretty much in a straight line. This, the actual story and theme of the movie is pretty straightforward. Uh, it's just coming at it from some very unusual directions. And I am so excited, uh, to just be witness to the kind of art that is flourishing in uh, 2018, really started before 2018, 2017. Um, this is a, a remarkable period, a renaissance of black art, Afrofuturism, Afro-surrealism, black horror, all of the, all of it that we have secretly loved when it did not reflect us. But now we have an opportunity not only to be reflected, but to lead. And that is so important 
because to speak to this sort of racial component of the film, yes, the main character is black, but it's not a black story. It's a story about capitalism. If black folks are safe, the rest of y'all will be fine. That's like sort of the whole rationale with Black Lives Matter. If you can keep black folks <laughs> from getting shot down for no reason by police, then mentally ill white folks will need not worry. Uh, because if you can protect the least, the Native Americans, if you can protect the, the most powerless in your society, there's a built-in cushion for people who are less powerless. And because we've been forced into movement spaces to try to make the country live up to its own constitution, we do have a capacity to lead that I think is really showing up in our art. And I think it does. I mean, it, these movies do reach audiences that, you know, other movies about black characters wouldn't necessarily reach and do communicate aspects of the black experience um, that, that, you know, that white audiences probably have never thought about in that way before. I mean, just certainly for me watching the first scene of Get Out, where the, um, you know, the, the neatly manicured lawns and hedges and trees of this, the white suburbs are presented as sort of the creepy in this in this sort of creepy horror movie way. Um, you know, made me think like, wow, I've, n I've never seen like, you know, the, the suburbs as the enemy, you know, as sort of like hostile territory. And of course, it, I feel dumb saying that, but the movie did make me feel that in a way that, you know, just I had never like come up with on my own necessarily. Then, then, the, then the project is doing its job. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's just a really exciting time to be a, a fan. Of, of this kind of work and, and to see all the new directions and new artists and to be inspired. I also want to, I had an interesting experience watching Sorry to Bother You where I was, I felt like I was laughing pretty consistently throughout the whole movie, but I felt like there were lots of parts where I was the only person laughing. Um, <laughs> and I feel like that there's something about the humor that is sort of, it's, I don't know, it's like not for everyone or it's like, um, not everyone would get it or like maybe people are not always sure if this is supposed to, if they're supposed to laugh at this or not. I mean, like you mentioned the, when cash is sort of forced to rap in front of the, the white party audience, um, you know, it's it sort of a lot of the humor is sort of on this line of uncomfortability, uh, uh, uncomfortableness where you're like, wait, am I supposed to be laughing at this or not? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, I mean. that's, that's the thing that made me feel like the movie was so, self-assured like you know you could certainly cut that scene out and the rest of the message of the movie comes through loud and clear right you don't that scene is not necessary for the the kind of moment by moment progression of the plot um but tonally um it's the moment where cash starts to go into this perverse mirror universe that's parallel to our own right this is what the the halls of the super rich look like um and what you have to do um, um, in order to enter them. Um, so from a thematic and tonal standpoint, it's necessary, but from a plot a point, it's not necessary. And I loved that, you know, it was so, uh, uncomfortable. I mean, I laughed both times that I saw it in the theater when I saw it, when I got to that scene. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it's Boots made the movie he wanted to make, you know, he made, he made the, the movie that spoke to his politics, um, and his vision of, of the world we live in. And I, I, I like that it's kind of unapologetic and uncompromising. Like all the stuff that Tananari said about the moment we're living in and the kind of black art that we're seeing right now. Like it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, all on the table time, you know? Like we've got to put it all on the table because of the political moment that we're in now. Um, being safe or being polite, um, or civil, 
um, has been debated uh, in the political discourse of late. Like that, that that maintains a very toxic status quo. And I think Boots recognized that, you know, years ago when he was writing this movie. Um, and and if we want change to happen, we've got to be uncomfortable. When he said, I saw an interview where he said, you know, that you know people will go see this movie and eighty percent of them will walk out and say, yeah, like I agree with the message basically behind that movie um and that these are the people that need to be engaged you know that, that we need to be reaching and need to be organizing and need to be engaged because there's there's so many people out there who more or less are on the same page as, as probably we all are and the filmmakers are and so on who are not you know not being brought into this process apathy is the enemy of change right that's i know it sounds trite but it's true and you know like uh uh there's there's a classic quote Tanana Reeve, I'm gonna need your help here, but all 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 evil needs to succeed is the inaction of of, of good men. I'm butchering. Yeah, right. But it's true. But, I mean the silence or inaction, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, like if if you know if you didn't stop to think about the working conditions that you operate in, that other people you operate in, the things that you made that you consume or are created in um, and the politics and where the money goes, if you didn't stop to think about any of this stuff after seeing that movie, then you might be part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. The hardest thing to see is the water you're swimming in, you know? So this is one of those pieces of art that can hold a mirror up to the audience and sort of help them better see the water we're all swimming in. Um, protest movements are not about them. They're about us. And, and that, and it, it, this has been such a long conversation, racism versus capitalism and all this kind of thing, but, but it's so true that we miss a large part of the conversation if we're only confronting racism and that this is a conversation that involves everyone, you know, who isn't a multi-billionaire. It's, it's the conversation of our, of our era, actually. I mean, Craig, is there anything you want to add about, um, you know, the, the relevance of this movie to, to our political moment or anything like that? I think the movie is in conversation with a bunch of every with everything from uh, the anti-capitalist uh, notion of say a Mr. Robot and their sort of anti-capitalist uh, ethos, as well as with uh, Afro surrealism, and I'm including even the work of say Carol Walker um, and her ways of recentering images of. Uh, race and post-racial society. I mean, is there any other uh, specific movies? Like, what would be the next thing that people should watch if they liked uh, Sorry to Bother You? Uh, what I'm actually thinking of is that, once again, that instead of just movies, they should check out the works of Colson Whitehead and uh, Paul Beatty. And there's an also another wonderful novel, Pym, by... I believe his name is Matt Smith, um, both of which deal with this, have the sort of absurdity that goes through it. So I would say that instead of movies, I would uh, recommend people go to books. Yeah, yeah. All right, so we're pretty much out of time. So how about I'll just get a final thought from everyone. So Craig, how about, do you have any final thoughts about this movie? Sorry to bother you. That it's very on key about talking about uh, the service industry and our post 
manufacturing post-capitalist society. Um, and that uh, it talks about how the corporations try to control the narrative. All right. And how about uh, Tanana Reeve, uh, final thoughts? I'm just so excited, you know, what a time to be alive, <laughs> which is, I, I swing between, oh my gosh, we're all going to die and what a time to be alive. But um, I'm going to land on the what a time to be, al- to be alive piece because this is an era of um, a new filmmaker I'm very excited about. And Boots Riley can't wait to see what he does next, what his influence will spawn, because, you know, when, when one film opens with this kind of imagination, it gives other artists permission to engage their deeper imagination instead of sort of skating the surface of the imagination to fit popular films or popular tropes or how can I be this? Just be you. I think that's maybe the biggest message I get as an artist is do you and let Hollywood come to you. Do not try to do Hollywood. And how about Evan? Final thought? Um, I just can't wait to see what Boost does next. You know, I feel like um, to the extent that this movie has been successful, it is a rallying cry for work that um, centers political concerns, socio-political concerns, socio-economic concerns, um, it, it, and can have them live through a cast that's primarily one of color, um, primarily black, um, and can imagine our lives with um, more nuance, more comedy, more urgency and metaphorical power than they typically get and through uh, a, a mainstream Hollywood studio system. Um, that's really encouraging. Um, and, and like Tanana Reeve said, we're living in a glorious, glorious moment right now. It, and, and living through these moments is always fraught because you feel like, all right, how much time do we have left before things get really pale and really boring again? Mm. Um, but, you know, um, as these bodies of work continue to come out, um, I, I have um, emboldened hope that uh, incremental permanent change um, is possible with the kind of art we consume, what we say, and what's possible. So I, I, I think Sorry to Bother You is a really important movie for those reasons. That The headline of my review on io9 was, and let me go to it because I forgot what it was, but yeah, my headline was "Sorry to Bother You" is the most surreal, important sci-fi movie in years, and I actually believe that. I believe that when I wrote yeah. it in March, I believe it now, and I believe it's going to be that way for years to come. And when 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 movies and TV shows and other things come along that um, pick up the baton um, thematically that this movie has 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 um, held out, uh, we're going to all be in a great place because of it. Yeah, so for everyone listening, if you haven't seen this movie, sorry to bother you, definitely check it out. It's just one of the most original, like, mind-blowing things that you're going to see. Um, and yes, yeah, so we're all out of time, so I think we're going to have to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Evan Narciss, Tanana Reeve Dew, and Craig Lawrence Giddy. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you. This was great. Thank you so much. Thanks, David. Thanks, uh, Tanana Reeve and Craig. Yeah. It was great talking with you guys. You all are amazing. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Evan Narciss, Tanana Reeve Dew, and Craig Lawrence Gidney for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Johnny Fever 79 in Canada, who writes, Best podcast in the known universe. 
This is hands down my all-time favorite podcast. The host does a terrific job of lining up amazing guests or panelists and covers a wide range of topics that always end up being super interesting. I'd rate it six stars if I could. It's that good. So big thanks again to Johnny Fever 79 for that great review. Special thanks as well to Armin Nakashian and Leitmeister, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Richard Neary, who just signed up to make regular monthly payments to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to Richard and to everyone else who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.